I hope this doesn't throw you a curve, but we are on record. There's about 500 or more people that listen to the Sabbath School <coughs> online. All right. We are starting the book of books when it comes to salvation and atonement. And we, just as a recap, and for those of you who have come in, we started years ago. <laughs> I don't remember how many years now. Started going through the Bible, looking at how the Bible deals with salvation and atonement as our theme. And we finally have reached the book where that is the hallmark of the book. That's what it's known for, the book of Romans. We don't make it through very many verses a week. That's why we've been going so slow. And, of course, we didn't do the whole Bible. We did sections that seemed to deal with salvation and atonement. But when it comes to Romans, I think it's important that we deal at least most of the book. So, let's begin. And we're in Romans 1. And a recap of what we were talking about earlier, uh, about where Paul was and what he was doing and, and so on. The conservative view is that he was in Corinth at the time he wrote this book, and he was anticipating going to Jerusalem, delivering the gifts he had gathered for the poor in Jerusalem because Jerusalem had been going through a famine. And uh, he was going to do that, and then he was going to travel to Spain and stop at Rome on his way to Spain. That was the goal. It got derailed. He uh, went to Jerusalem as planned. He gave his offering, but they were so skeptical of Paul and the way he was dealing with the cavalier and, and uh, liberal way he was dealing with circumcision that they uh, asked him to kind of restore the faith of the Jewish brethren by going taking a bow along with another Jewish Christian and uh, fulfilling it at the temple. He capitulated to that, unfortunately. And in the process of carrying out that vow at the temple, uh, somebody yelled, Hey, isn't he, the, you know, Paul of Tarsus? And they captured him, took him before the Sanhedrin, and then handed him over to the Romans. Well, actually, Paul asked to be handed over to the Romans. I think he felt he would get a fairer hearing than he would from his own Jewish brethren. And so he ended up appealing to Caesar, and so he went to Rome. And, and my sense of things is, uh, he, it was prophesied to him before he left by uh, a prophet that met him on the way that uh, he would not, the, the inference was he would not survive being captured if he went to Jerusalem. And so I think my sense of things is that he appealed to Caesar perhaps not only to try to get a fair hearing, but he wanted to proclaim the gospel to Caesar. Paul's audacious. You know? <laughs> he uh, wasn't intimidated by anybody. And he also, I think, felt that that was one way to get to Rome. He wanted to visit Rome and visit the Christians there. So he did, because he appealed to Caesar. He was able to go to Rome. But, of course, this is after he wrote this letter to the Romans. So, to begin with uh, verse 1, and um, I'm Adrian, would you please read verses 1 to 7? Sure. From Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. 
This gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was a descendant of David with reference to the flesh, who was appointed the Son of God in power, according to the Holy Spirit, by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we have received grace and our apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles on behalf of his name. You also are among them, called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those loved by God in Rome, called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hmm. Now we've just come from Acts, where the standard gospel fare was simply the facts. Jesus Jesus died. You you slew Jesus. It, usually it was an indictment against the Jews for slay, for putting Jesus on the cross. And, and Jesus died, and he rose again, and he sent it to fa- the Father, and so on. So it sort of feels like Paul is starting in that same vein, doesn't it, here? Mm-hmm. The gospel concerning his son who was descended from David mm-hmm. according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, etc., that's the storyline of the gospel. Hmm. What does it mean? And see, Acts doesn't tell us much about what it means. It doesn't tell us why Jesus had to die. It doesn't tell how he died for our sins as much. It does a little bit. Mm-hmm. But it mostly tells just the facts. Mm-hmm. And it's Paul's job in this book, it seems. He's taken on the task of trying to explain it. Mm-hmm. Theologically. He doesn't want any confusion about who Christ was. Right. And it, and it was historically noted in the prophets. He's making a, a, just another statement how very clear that is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he, he, he actually shows that Jesus is God and man both he was descended from David according to the flesh so he's human and yet he's the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead Uh, Jesus the Messiah our Lord and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith I want to spend a little time on our Lord there's the confusion in our translations. And this is due to uh, a long history of Jewish sensitivity to ever taking, ever saying the name of God, which we, in Christian circles, pronounce Yahweh. Uh, it's not real certain, it's not totally certain uh, that that's the right pronunciation because Yahweh was never spelled with vowels until the Masoretes came along and developed the vocalization of every word. And they chose for the vowels, as I recall, the vowels for Adonai, which means Lord. And that's because Jews will never say the name because lest they break the third commandment, which is taking the name of of Yahweh in vain. And so uh, they substituted for it several things, uh, one is Adonai, meaning Lord, and that was the most prevalent one. Another one was Hashem, uh, the name. And another one was the power. I find those substitutions unfortunate 
Hashem, it's probably the least innocuous. Uh, but once you substitute for the Yahweh is is based on the verb to be. The one, you could say the self-existent one, or you could say the one who is who he is. There's there's no variation. Uh, he is who he is, and he's he's uh, one kind of God. And it has to do with his eternality. It has to do with his presence. It has to do with all the things that we think of when we think of God. But it isn't strictured down to Lord. You know, to put that encapsulation on the term Yahweh is to stricture it and also to make it have the sense of kind of kingly power, that God exercises power like earthly kings. Mm -hmm. So it's always struck me, Jesus is called Lord throughout the New Testament. Is that Adonai? No, I mean, we have it in the Greek, Kyrios. What happened with the Septuagint version, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, is that they translated Yahweh as Kyrios throughout the entire book. Now, I don't know what they did when they came to those parts in Isaiah and Ezekiel where he is called Adonai Yahweh. <laughs> They're Kyrios, Kyrios? Or, I haven't looked those passages up to find out. But it is... It is um, interesting that this development occurred. And so when the New Testament talks of Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah as Lord, are they referring to something separated from the name Yahweh, or are they giving, attributing to him the name Yahweh in its substitutionary form? And that I can't be sure, because how would you say our Yahweh? I mean, that doesn't sound right. Mm -hmm. So it seems that Paul's maybe using that a little differently. But I would guess the way he words this, that he is thinking of Jesus as Yahweh. Do you mean we can assume that he's inferring that Jesus Christ can be considered Yahweh because he says, from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we receive grace and apostleship? Um, so we couldn't receive those things through something else? Actually, he's tying it to the Son of God with power. He, Jesus hmm. is fully God, therefore he is Yahweh. Hmm. Right. Kim, you were going to say something? Um, I was just going to ask a question in reference to the Son of God with power, and you said Yahweh. Um, does that also refer back to I am? Yes, that because, is. Uh, Yahweh is the substitution, actually, itself. It's not the actual name of God. The actual name of God is spelled differently. Because Yahweh is the third person, third masculine singular of I will be. I mean, if he will be. He will be, okay. Yeah, he will, it's not I am. I am or I will be, I am, I have been, etc. So what I think is is happening here is that well, the, the, I, he may not be using Lord in that sense. He does ascribe to Jesus the equality of Godship. Hmm. And he certainly does in Colossians and other places. And one of the things we're not going to be, high, we're not going to limit ourselves to merely studying Romans. When we need to go other, to other books that Paul has written, we're going to let Paul interpret Paul 
And and so we're gonna we're gonna work. I, and we're not gonna sit on just a few verses in Romans at a time and stay stay within that context. We're gonna go roving through Romans back and forth, and, and uh, that way we can grasp, I think, better what Paul's trying to say. I'm curious because I know your specialization is, is Old Testament scholarship. How much of a jolt was it? You know, with that being your focus to kind of our paradigm shift. Was it versus you know going to Romans? Because I know you've done an in-depth study now of Romans. Well, yeah, my, the history on that, of course, is that I did my master's degree in New Testament. Okay. And I did my thesis on Romans. Okay. On the righteousness of God in Romans. Okay. Uh, and I had planned to do the same for my doctorate. Mm-hmm. And so I arrived at my, I I, I signed up for this doctoral program that was in uh, ancient Near Eastern mm-hmm. studies. I think I told this in in. Uh, but I don't know if the rest of you have heard it. Um, so if you don't mind <laughs> hearing it again, uh, I uh, just signed up for this joint degree program in ancient Near Eastern religions, mm-hmm. thinking because it went into the Roman period that I could do the New Testament. Mm-hmm. And I arrived at my advisor's office to talk to him, and his response was, this is only an Old Testament program. You cannot do the New Testament. But I had planned to do Romans. That was a 180-degree paradigm shift. <laughs> and my, I, my mind was reeling. But as I drove home, I was cognizant of one and only one thing. Before I left Hong Kong, I was, I was debating in my mind. I knew that a New Testament degree would be fairly simple for me to do, accomplish. Mm-hmm. And I knew I needed something more challenging. Mm-hmm. And... So I was casting about what else I could do once I got my New Testament degree. And I thought of going into sciences and combining science and religion. I thought about that. I also thought about the fact that I had this love affair for interpreting Babylon in terms of the Bible, Mm -hmm. particularly Revelation. And I finally, I think I settled in my mind that once I got my New Testament degree, I would go back and learn Akkadian and study Babylon. Well, when I found out this was only Old Testament and the ancient Near East and Mesopotamia particularly, and that I would have to study Akkadian if I wanted to do that, it was, became very crystal clear that God had planned this little scheme of dumping me out of New Testament and putting me right where I had to study Babylonia. I mean, I didn't have to. I could have stuck to the Old Testament, but it would have been futile. I, you know, why take a degree in, in the ancient Near East and not study the ancient Near East? So um, I came home that day realizing that my someday was God's now and that this was mm-hmm. on. Interesting. But I, I can say that in my more recent study of Romans, of course, I read Romans. Uh, even, even before I went into my Old Testament degree, I would look at the New Testament through the eyes of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. I, I, I remember teaching intermediate Greek to my students in Hong Kong, <laughs> and I kept hearing the Old Testament way of thinking in John, the Gospel of John, which we were translating. And I, I would bring out things, and, and that clearly is Paul. Paul is steeped in the Old Testament. It really helps to understand the Old Testament to, to understand Paul. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about one word that's going to be just very, very key 
to Paul's theology. Uh, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for the sake of his name. What does Paul mean by the obedience of faith? I'm tempted to get technical here and talk about the Greek. I, I take this as a genitive of source. And in a genitive of source, you could almost paraphrase it, uh, the obedience that springs from faith. That makes more sense than obedience of faith. Yeah, yeah well, of faith is kind of bland in English. We don't really have a, a strong meaning. It, it's faith that, it's, it's obedience that maybe it's found in faith or it's obedience. You know, we, we don't have a strong understanding of it. In the Greek, it's clear. Mine. I don't know if it makes any difference, but mine says to the faith. Okay. I knew I should have brought my Greek New Testament down here. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Obedience Mm -hmm. to the faith. Yes, because they're... Okay. Instead of taking it as a genitive of source, they have kept taking it as an objective genitive. There's objective genitive and there's subjective genitives. Okay, so I had to, my, my mind had to go way, way back <laughs> to get this out of my memory. So the, the genitive of, that is objective is obedience to. The, uh, the uh, genitive that is subjective is the obedience of faith or faith's obedience. Obedience. I don't, I'm not taking it as a genitive of either of those. I'm taking it as a genitive of source, of faith, of obedience that springs out of faith. So when you say obedience to the faith, you're looking at the faith as kind of like we say, what is your faith? You know, what is your faith base, your, your faith tradition? And what is your uh, belief system? Well, I mean, and and that isn't Pauline. Yeah, I, at I think all. I think to be genuine, it has to be personalized. So I, this this kind of thing, the objective to the faith, like something's been codified for us. Yeah, and we just subject ourselves to whatever. We now have a creed, and, yeah, and we yeah, are, yeah. yeah. And I think that's very dangerous because, like I told my kids when they were growing up, you know, I want you to be passionate about your spirituality, <clears throat> but if it's genuine and real, it's going to look different than mine or your mom's or other people that you know, and that's okay. Just make sure it's real. It's between you and God. You know, your personality's a little different. We're all a little different. It's okay. You know, we're all move, moving towards the same direction, but we may have certain things that, you know, the way we, mani- our faith manifests itself, or it can be a little bit different. So I, I'm going to scratch that version. I don't know what version. Was that King James? King James. <laughs> So I just scratched it away. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will say that the King James Version is not an infallible translation. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so, well, you know, there's churches, and I'm sure you're the same way, there's churches I've preached in where I wouldn't dare use any other anything version. but the King James just because it, people weren't ready to go there. It's not because it's my preferred version. So, But... Um, what this means is this obedience that comes from faith, that comes out of faith, that comes, uh, and Paul's going to reiterate this and, and make it clearer in the subsequent chapters. Uh, if that's the case, it means that in Paul's view, the only kind of obedience that really is is the obedience that springs out of faith. 
It's the source is faith. It, it's um, it's the it, the obedience is the result of faith. And that leads us to needing to nail down this word faith. We use faith very loosely to mean belief. Is that what how Paul's using it? Could it also be considered trust in what we know? You know, um, some recent scholars, including N.T. Wright, and I'm thinking of Sigva Tonstad too in this, I believe he holds the same view in his recent commentary on, on Romans. It's been a while since I read that in part. Faith can mean faithfulness mm-hmm. in Hebrew. If you're thinking Hebrew behind the Greek text, which I think with Paul you have to, it, that word, same word can mean faithfulness. Faithfulness can also mean trustworthiness. Mm-hmm. And so this is foundational to Paul's understanding, is that the faithfulness or trustworthiness of God mm-hmm. is all important mm-hmm. here. And this is, if, if we grasp this term for what it means, then we have begun to grasp what Paul's talking about. It, it will be much easier to read this. And of course, uh, at times I will have to translate for you because almost every version views Paul through a legal lens to some degree, not a trustworthy lens. And let's, let's do a review of history. And this is, this is something that I feed into almost all my classes. God did not invent the legal constructs that we're so familiar with. If you think about it, in the book of Genesis, God has a relationship with Abraham that for the most part is non-legal. It's only legal when Abraham requests something legal. And and that has to do with the covenant. It's human beings that created, that invented the legal systems that we are so familiar with, and it was ancient Mesopotamia is where they began. So Sumer, the Sumerians were the first to invent legal structures, shortly followed by the Akkadian-speaking peoples that we call sometimes the Babylonians. So the reason for legal structures is not because we have so much faith. It's because we lack trust in other people. We have to have some kind of contractual agreement, some kind of contractual relationship or transactional relationship that we can nail down and pin you down and use in court if you mess up and let us down. So we have to keep that in mind as a backdrop to Romans because that's the field in which Paul is wrestling So let's uh, review the first part of the Abrahamic Covenant. Can I just interject? Yes. Because this important part of the law and the legalism. So Cain kills Abel. So Cain wasn't then uh, tried and executed, hung or anything. Well, God protects him from that. There wasn't a legal system developed then, codified... There wasn't a codified legal system, but there was a, a retributive system. Because Cain fears that someone will take his life. Okay, so, so it would be the same thing. As we, we, call, we refer to this in legal terms. And keep in mind, 
the reason I talk so much about this is because I majored in ancient Near Eastern biblical law. So the term we use for help in this is self-help. The term for someone, if you kill someone in my tribe, I'm going to kill someone in your tribe, right? We call that blood feud, but actually it's self-help. It's, it's the society trying to, to, to counteract and retrieve justice in a very unjust situation. So that's what you have with Cain, the Cain story. So no, you won't, have, you won't be tried as a criminal and actually put to death. Um, and actually, even in early ancient Near Eastern law, most laws w- had to do with property issues. They did not have to do with crime as much. So if you murdered a man, and, and most everything was pecuniary and penalty, so if you murdered a man, you paid. Uh, you didn't lose your life. Losing the life would be a tr- more tribal experience, and self-help, again, in plays a role in that. So through Mesopotamian history, they made a transition from pecuniary punishment to more formal constraints and uh, even um, taking lives. Actually, it, they probably took lives first and then moved to pecuniary as they developed okay. society. And then <coughs> under Hammurabi, they shifted back to lex talionis. Mm-hmm. Which is? Which is uh, eye, eye for eye, eye, tooth for tooth, or life, life for life. So there's been fluctuation as far as... There's been fluctuation. And Hammurabi's Talionic law is considered an an innovation Hmm. in law. Well, see, in some of the the Levitical laws, they're more like Hammurabi's kind of... Well, um, actually, there's only one place in Leviticus that has... There's actually only three laws that have to do with the Lex Talionis. Mm -hmm. And the Lex Talionis is there to explain the law and its use. It is not as an overarching principle in the Bible. And that's something a lot of people don't recognize. I think well, the, what the I mean by that is there's a lot of things people could die for. You know? Oh, yes, capital. Yes, in terms of capital crimes. Yeah, goodness yeah. gracious. Like, <laughs> yeah, I would have died several times over probably. So, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, several things. Every one of the Ten Commandments is a capital crime. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Because you can find a law somewhere in Torah or an experience somewhere in Torah where someone dies. Mm-hmm. Someone dies for picking up sticks on the Sabbath, so Sabbath is a cap- breaking the Sabbath is a capital crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone dies for uh, blaspheming the name, uh, so uh, breaking the third commandment is a capital crime. Mm-hmm. And uh, Id- idolatry wow. is viewed as a capital crime. And feeling smiting your mother or father or cursing your mother and your father uh, is a capital crime, and so on. You just recently went through those, those laws, and, and you know. So let's go to Abraham's covenant. And what is interesting, uh, go ahead and turn to Genesis, because this is so key to understanding Romans. And I could wait until Paul is actually dealing with this, but what I'll do is just review it at that point, because it doesn't hurt to go through things twice, so remember them. The thing is, we've read about Gene's class. It's not just a study of a book of the Bible. It's a Bible study. Mm-hmm. It's the whole Bible. Yeah. <laughs> That's why we love coming, Gene. So thanks. Okay, Genesis 15, and we'll hopefully cram this into the last 10 minutes. Verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. And I love this the way God interacts with this man. Mm-hmm. Totally open, conversational. You talk back to me, I'll talk to you. 
there's, there's no formality here. And Abraham said, Oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless in the heir of my house as Eliezer of Damascus. Thank you for blessing me, but you haven't given me an heir. And Abraham said, You give me no offspring and no slave, and so a slave born in my house will be my heir. But the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. No one but your very own issue shall be your heir. He brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he, that is Abram, believed the Lord, and the Lord reckoned it to him as righteousness. Or you could say in Hebrew, he considered it. He took it as his righteousness. Where is the covenant? There's not a mention of the word. But this is the Abrahamic covenant. Part one. But God doesn't call it a covenant. He doesn't have a formal ratification. It's just a simple promise. And that's what Paul's contention is. The covenant of promise. Uses that term. Especially in Galatians. Excuse me. What established the covenant is Abraham's trust and and confidence in in, in what God said. What happens in this covenant is... God makes a promise, and Abraham says, I trust you to fulfill that promise. I believe you. And that belief is trust. It isn't just, okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, I accept. Uh, it's, it's really a personal relationship that is being formed here, and it's a relationship that's built on his belief that God can be trusted, or his, God is trustworthy. Rather than his simple admission that God is right. capable of that. You see, whatever you feel, believe about covenants and, and legal matters and law, if you draw kind of a paradigmatic tra- uh, trajectory, the more legalized you get, the more distance you have between you and the ultimate authority in law, which we usually consider to be the judge. I sometimes ask my students in class, so uh, if, suppose you went to court and you were called in, subpoenaed uh, as a witness or something. How, how close a relationship would you have with the judge? How would you view the judge? Would you be able to converse with him as with a friend? No. No. So the more legalized we get, the more distance we have between the ultimate authority and the less legalized we ha- are, and the more trust is generated, the closer we are to that person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting because I think a lot of times our, our prayer and meditation life focuses on like what what can we get from God and petitions. And quite frankly, I kind of find that to be s- somewhat selfish. So I try to spend more time when I'm talking to God out in the woods or whatever at night when I'm going to bed, you know, just to say thanks. But there's something that's very pure and, and dear about people that really take their petitions to God in a very heartfelt way mm-hmm. and then believe that something's going to happen. I'll, I'll give you an example of it that's beautiful. Zach Sorovic, one of your students, Alicia, who was one of my students, Alicia Sorovic, who was one of my students, you know, the, um, um, she, she worked for me for three years, and she had this beautiful faith that God was going to unlock the door so they could go back to Arizona and be close to their parents, and he was going to be a minister there, and she scared the bejeebers out of me because she got engaged 
a year before they're going to graduate. They had no job. A couple weeks before graduation, they had no job. And my child, like, like y'all, you know, where, where are you going to get your first picture? Oh, don't worry, don't, don't worry, Nancy. God's going to open the doors. Like, we're going to Arizona. Like, we've been praying about it, you know. Remember? Mm-hmm. And, like, I'm freaking out. And, like, sure enough, God did open the doors. And, like, and you know what? He didn't get his formal, he had an informal offer, but he didn't have the formal offer from, this, from Arizona Conference until after they got married, one week after graduation. Wow. So there's just something, I mean, I, I feel like they kind of had that trust, they had that, that, that covenant almost relationship. almost childlike, childlike yeah, faith was, that it, just, we, we know God well mm-hmm. enough to know he's going to answer. Yeah, it was prayer. just beautiful to see. Yeah, it's, so. it's been fun to watch those two grow, and, and yeah. I, I, love, I love those two very yeah. much. Mm-hmm. So that's this is this is a conversational covenant. This is not a legal, pure and simple legal covenant. But wait to see what happens. So he trusted God, or trusted Yahweh, and Yahweh considered that his righteousness. What I maintain is that what this verse means is that Yahweh said, "This is the righteousness I want. This is the right relationship I want. When you trust me, then I know we have it right." Mm-hmm. So, uh, so then he said to him, "I am Yahweh who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans." This one's a sound right. I'm, the, I'm Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Doesn't this remind you of the Sinai covenant? Mm-hmm. But he still doesn't mention covenant to give this land to you to possess. But he said, "Oh Yahweh God, how am I to know that I shall possess it?" Uh oh, what happened to Abraham's Abram's faith? It faltered. It faltered. <laughs> it faltered. He he now needs something transactional, something covenantal, something contractual. <laughs> so Yahweh says, "Okay, we'll go there." He said to him, "Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and young pigeon." He brought them to all these and cut them in two. So Abraham brings these, and he knows exactly what to do. He knows what God is talking about, and God doesn't have to spell it out. Okay, uh, let's introduce the covenant here, uh, Abram, uh, and this is the contract, and, and this is what you do. Now, Abram knows. By the way, this is very much Mari kind of <clears throat> transactionalism. And, you know, it is possible that Abram came from Ur of the Chaldees, but his ancestors could still have been Amorite. And the Amorites lived west of the Euphrates River. And were still considered in the Babylonian milieu. Uh, but they were tribal, very much like Israel. Had names similar to those in Israel. And um, it's very possible that Abram was an Amorite. The Bible in one place calls him an Amorite. Uh, my father was an Amorite and my mother was a Hittite. <laughs> yeah, it's beautiful. When you get, not, don't want to make make us go there, but Hebrews eleven, eight through twelve tells this story all over again. Yeah, you know that's true. Abram and his faith. So he cuts these animals in half, and he separates them like this. He lays them over against each other, so they they're facing each other, the two halves. But there's an aisle down the middle. Is there something about the three, three years old? Because usually. That means they're mature, mm-hmm. and yet they're still young. That's in their, kind of the beginning of their prime. And he brings a turtle dove and a young pigeon and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he did not cut the birds in two. And when the birds of prey came down the carcasses, Abram drove them away. 
As the sun was going down, so he has to wait a while for God to show up. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and a deep and terrifying darkness descended upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain, that your offspring shall be aliens in a land that is not theirs, and shall be slaves there, and they shall be oppressed for 400 years. Now what is God saying? Is he saying, because you didn't totally trust me, there's going to be a DNA weakness in your subsequent generations. I think he's just being transparent. And you're going to be slaves as a result of this. I don't know. I don't think so. You don't think so? No. I think he's just stating like, hey, I can see the future, and this is what's going to happen, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to be with you even through this 400 years. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your ancestors in peace. You shall be buried in good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down, it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch. Whose smoking firepot and flaming torch? What does this represent? Well, this obviously is from God. I mean, Abraham, Abraham didn't have the capacity to have a smoking pot and a fire and a sensor come marching through <laughs> these animal parts. Um, it probably does represent that. It represents God's in person coming down. And now we have the covenant. We don't have a covenant with the promise. We have a covenant with this legal transaction. On that day, Yahweh made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants, I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Canaanites, the Canaanites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Gergesites, and the Jebusites. What kind of covenant is this? There's a text from Mari that is somewhat similar. And what this means is that God passed between those parts and said, you may cut me in pieces if I do not fulfill my promise. Wow. The person who made a covenant with someone had to pass, had to walk between those pieces, saying, you may cut me in pieces. And they might not verbalize it, but the act of walking through it was a statement. You may cut me in pieces if I do not do the terms of my promise or my covenant. Wow. That's huge condescension on the part of God. This is still God's promise that he is going to prove himself to be trustworthy and he will even stoop to doing a contractual level uh, assurance of that with Abraham. My margin here, it, uh, in my mind, I think is talking about the seed of righteousness. So we're talking about Abraham. So right, Abraham falters. So he'll die righteous. But in his faltering and not trusting, I think the implication is that there is a penalty to that. That will work out because you've lost by trust. You're going to make decisions that aren't going to help and eventually you'll be slaves and so forth. That's how I'm kind of reading the text. That when when uh, there's a causal there's a causal connection in between stories and and how they're pieced together in uh, the Bible. 
uh, particularly in Genesis, stories follow statements or predictions follow statements for a reason because they're connected. And, and so that's kind of how I'm reading the text. And, and if we follow the storyline, okay, Abram didn't trust this, so God had to do a contract with him called the covenant. Mm-hmm. So is this what, an instance where God's adapted his will to the yes, people? Yes, yes. You're hearing my, my storyline of the covenants now. <laughs> uh, so what happens next? Ishmael. How much did God did Abram trust God Not to much. fulfill? Not much. Mm-hmm. So he he doesn't trust the second part of the covenant, which is land, and so he has to have a contract. He doesn't trust then the first part of the covenant and, and opts out to have his own son to fulfill it, and that's Ishmael. And so God says, Okay, I guess we're gonna have to cut another covenant. And since you are insisting on fulfilling the terms of my covenant, instead of letting me do it, um, we're going to have to cut a little closer to home. That's circumcision. And circumcision is a cutting of the covenant. And finally, he keeps lying about Sarah and jeopardizing the covenant. So there's a crisis in heaven about whether Abraham can be trusted. (laughs) And so God has to test Abraham's faith. And there's a final cutting of the covenant that never takes place. Mm-hmm. And that's the sacrifice of Isaac, mm-hmm. or the binding of Isaac. So what you're seeing here is a sequential God making a promise, and Abraham initially trusting God, but then faltering. We move to a legal sense, and we now we have a contractual agreement, and then we move to, uh, and then we again he falters more seriously, and has Ishmael, and so then we move to an even deeper cutting of the covenant of circumcision. And then finally he keeps lying about Sarah and, and nearly jeopardizing the covenant. And so they, uh, he ends up having to take Isaac up that mountain. And, um, and Abraham and his seed then, they are moving more and more away from More and more away from that. And, and so by the time Sinai comes, they have no choice but to have a fully legal kind of covenant. And even the Sinai covenant is not initially legal. Mm-hmm. Not totally. Mm-hmm. It has legal overtones, but not totally. But, you know, God was still faithful in, in fulfilling the covenant. I mean, right, right. You, you look at that, he's the father but, really of four faiths. You know, Judaism, um, Islam, yeah, um, yeah. Christianity, in Baha'i, yeah. all, all are so Abrahamic. You know? The purpose of my telling this story is to help you understand Paul. Paul is arguing for faith. That's the only thing God wants, is our trust. And then obedience comes in its train. So then God couldn't say, all right, Abraham, sorry, you don't like this deal, I'm going to pull the covenant. No. No, he couldn't. No, God, God because then he would be unfaithful. Yes. And, And see, that's going to be, jumping ahead of our story here in Romans, that's going to be one of the things that Paul raises that has to do with Jesus' death. It was God faithful? But, you know, in spite of the bumbling and stumbling, this guy's still known as the father of faith. Yeah. That's his legacy, you know, moving on down to Hebrews 11. Mm-hmm. You know, that's his legacy today. It's not, not the mistakes he made. It's like mm-hmm. the, the tenor of his life was one that was tremendously courageous. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here, Romans 3, he says... 
What if some were unfaithful? Uh, well, let me let me talk about uh, verse one. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, for in the first place the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Will their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. See, when God walked through those body parts, he said, I will fulfill the terms of my covenant, and if I don't, you have the right to cut me in pieces. Jesus goes to the cross yeah. because of their unfaithfulness, right. their un- inability to trust mm. him. He goes to the cross because he will fulfill the terms of the covenant. And thus he opens the door for more than Abraham's seed to fulfill, to enter into that relationship with him with trust. This, is this cyclic of uh, Genesis and Garden of Eden and the promise and, and death and... You can trace it that far back. I usually start with with Noah's covenant, which is established, not cut. The cutting of the covenant begins with Abraham. By the way, the word karat, which is usually used with the covenant, means to cut. So it it refers to this kind of ceremonial thing of cutting animals and and cutting a covenant. The Babylonians did it a little... They didn't like shedding blood, apparently. So they slice their throats with their fingers or they would take their fingers and dip them in oil and touch their throats meaning you can cut my head off (laughs) if I do not fulfill this the part that we were looking at in Genesis is it um, like when God's talking about they're going to be slaves in Egypt is that like terms of the covenant right before they make the covenant or is that more like God's giving Abraham a reassurance of even though you're not having faith in me, I know what's happening. Okay. That, that could also be a, a role that's being played. He, you see, uh, he expects Abraham to hand this down to his generations. Mm-hmm. He wants them to know that they will be brought out of slavery. Okay. So uh, but he wants them forewarned. Promise. Because otherwise, he, he, this, is, this is both because of lack of faith and because he wants to get their faith. Mm-hmm. He wants to keep their faith, what faith they have. Because otherwise in slavery they could completely lose faith, and they practically do, you know, when Moses comes back. So, so is the purpose of God saying these things to Abraham afterwards, that we will have a covenant, is, is the purpose of that to have Abraham and, and us too, because Paul is paying attention to this message as well, recognize that God can be trusted even though our faith in him is fickle. And yeah. so, because of that, we should have more faith. Right. It, it's right. evidence of his yeah. um, omnipotence yeah. and our failings. Yeah. And because of that, we we need more faith too. And I think mm-hmm. that's. Yeah. I think, I think this is saying. where Paul. Yeah, where Paul is headed. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a very good, a strong introduction to the book, and we'll just kind of continue on next week. Thanks for making this nice.